Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we completed our study of the Ten Commandments last Sunday, and for the next couple of weeks here in October, I'd like to do a brief study on the the topic of stewardship, as we have a special offering coming at the end of this month, a a sacrifice offering, that that offering would be a sacrifice that we'd be praying about, but that we would think biblically about the area of giving and recognizing, as we concluded with the, the Tenth Commandment of not coveting, and what a challenge that is within our culture. If you want to use the Bibles there in the chairs, we're on page 792. We'll be reading this passage in a few moments. A number of years ago, a Christian publication told the story of uh, a young pastor named Tim, Tim Dearborn who, who ended up sharing a cab with a, an individual while traveling in Bangkok, Thailand. The other, one of the passengers in that cab with Tim was a Marxist revolutionary on his way to India. And in the course of their conversation, the Marxist quizzed Tim as to to why he was going to where he was and about his faith as it came out that that he was a Christian, that he was seeking to share the gospel as a missionary with others. And, And the Marxist finally said, how can you be a Christian? Don't you realize there's no way that your cause can win? Tim asked him, what do you mean there's no way my cause can win? And the Marxist explained... I am on my way to India to organize fishermen to overthrow their oppressors. And I am quite willing to lay down my life for the revolution. Your American Christianity is preoccupied with what your God can do for you. And dying for self-interest is a contradiction of terms. There's a lot of truth in that statement. Unfortunately, I think he had a fairly clear representation of American Christianity in many ways. But I trust that's not our heart. What I want us to consider this morning, though, is the foundation of stewardship really is a surrendered life. As I mentioned, I want to look at this for the next couple of weeks as we lead up to that special offering, that we would think biblically, not from a pressure perspective, but that we have a biblical perspective. And so this morning, I want us to consider the foundation of stewardship, that being a a life of surrender. Next week, Lord willing, looking at the focus of stewardship, that we're, we're striving to glorify God, that it's the glory of God, and then concluding on, on that special offering Sunday about the fun of stewardship, that there really is a joy in giving to advance the cause of Christ. And when we're seeking to invest for eternity, that we have a wonderful opportunity But I want us to start this morning with a very familiar passage to most of us, but an important passage because it speaks of surrender. In Romans chapter 12, if you have your Bibles open, follow with me as I begin reading in verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And look at the third verse with me, though it's, it's not on the screen. For I say, 
through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we look into your word, we pray that we would come with hearts that are surrendered to you, that we would give our lives, our bodies, and that that our desire would be that we would be living sacrifice, sacrifices holy and acceptable to you, that we would understand the reasonableness in our service, and that you would be honored and glorified in all that we do, in all that we say, and who we are. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. What I want us to see from this passage this morning with the application towards stewardship is that to offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice really is the supreme act of worship. The truth of of Romans 12, 1 and 2 sums up 11 chapters of doctrine. The first 11 chapters of Romans are, are laying out the doctrinal need for salvation that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that the the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life, the justification that comes through Christ, the security is, as Dr. Ball has shared with us for several weeks in, in our evening service, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then the natural response of understanding all that has taken place, that that nothing can separate us from the will of God, the love of God in Christ Jesus, is that we ought to surrender ourselves. That these verses reveal the natural response of a Christian who recognizes that all that God has done for him. And it begins with that exhortation, I beseech you, I, I, I am concerned. It's, it's that exhortation to believers, therefore. Now, there's a number of significant therefores in Romans. There's the therefore of condemnation in chapter 3. There's the therefore of justification because of what Christ has done, the the security, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and and now the therefore of surrender. And what I want us to see this morning is, first of all, that biblical stewardship begins with personal surrender to God. The the consideration of Christian stewardship is, is an application of that surrender. Now, now when I use the word stewardship, I, I know it's, a, it's an our older word. It dates back to the 15th century. But when we hear it, we start thinking, oh no, he's talking about money. Well, that is part of it. But the word covers far more than mere finances. It's really the responsibility that we have as believers with all of our resources to serve the Lord. So it includes our time, our, our talents, our abilities, how we share the truth as well as our treasure. It includes, yes, how we handle money, and, and the Bible has a lot to say about that. We just finished the Ten Commandments. Two of the Ten Commandments deal with a person's relationship with material things. The Eighth and the Tenth Commandments, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. In fact, 16 of Christ's 38 parables speak about handling earthly treasures. And it's been said that 25% of Jesus' teaching dealt with giving and that he spoke more about stewardship than heaven and hell combined. Now, I have not tried to figure out how how they got these numbers. I haven't checked the, the numbers. But what we do know is that the Lord's word, God's word, has a lot to say about how we handle money. And the truth is, people think about it a lot. We think about how we get money, how we keep it, how we spend it, how we save it, how we invest it, how we borrow it. It it consumes a lot of our thinking. And so it is proper for us to discuss that. Now, 
I've said many times, Tri-City Baptist Church is a generous church. And it really is a joy to see what we're able to do. I mean, we wouldn't even be talking about debt retirement by the end of this year if it were not for the generosity of God's people. You know, just, just over 10 years ago, we had over an $11 million debt on this property. And now it's within reach of paying it off. So, so when we're emphasizing a special Sunday to retire the debt the, and, and calling it a sacrifice Sunday offering, the offering is sacrificial. It's also our sacrifice. And our desire is that we would prayerfully determine how we can give. We can't all give equal amounts, but we can all give with sacrifice. And, and it's a joy to see that it, here at Tri-City. But as I say that, and as you can see numbers in the bulletins week after week of the generosity of our church, that doesn't mean that every person is generous. In fact, it would be easy in a church like ours to justify, well, they don't really need my money. And I do. Well, the real question is, are we giving it to God? I want us to think biblically and faithfully in this area because it not only has ramifications for, for ministry, but also for personal growth and blessing. See, stewardship is about much more than what we do with our money. It's about what we do with our lives. And that's the reason I've had us come here to Romans chapter 12. The first thing I want us to see from this passage uh, concerning personal surrender is that you must have a personal relationship with the Lord. It begins, I beseech you therefore, brethren. This is written to Christians to believers, to brothers and sisters in Christ. These two verses provide three prerequisites for knowing the will of God, for discerning God's will, that you may prove or discern the will of God. It, it requires a bodily surrender based on His mercies and for His glory. It requires a practical nonconformity to the world. Be not conformed to this world. Be different and then a radical transformation that comes by renewing our mind. So those are the prerequisites for knowing the will of God. But I want us to make the application in this area this morning because the discussion of Christian stewardship is not for people who do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're here without Christ or watching on, on live stream and you don't know Christ personally, this really is not for you. Because Christ does not deal in the area of money for righteousness. This is, this is those who have presented themselves to God, it, and that offering isn't financial, it's themselves. God doesn't deal in the currency of money or good works for righteousness. So if you think your good works will outweigh your bad works and God will be satisfied because you've, you've come out on the positive side of the equation, you're wrong because it's through faith alone in Christ alone. In fact, even if you are a multi-billionaire, you are too impoverished to buy righteous standing before a holy God. It takes the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I don't want any confusion that I'm really speaking to Christians when we talk about stewardship. That, that you have to have that personal relationship because that's, very, that's a prerequisite. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, believers, based on the previous 11 chapters of recognizing that you are a sinner and need a Savior and trusting Christ alone and having that security, now there's a response. And what we see then as well is, secondly, that you must personally resist the tendency of the flesh. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies 
Now, that statement almost doesn't sound right. We would almost think, well, I, I should present my heart to God. You know, man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Why does it say present our bodies? I mean, shouldn't that be it? Well, understand, again, this is directed toward believers, so God already has their heart. That if you are a believer, you've given your life to Christ. You've given your life. But isn't the truth for all of us that we struggle in the area of the flesh, our bodies? In fact, Jesus said even when the Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And so back in chapter 7 of Romans, Paul is struggling and, and he's talking about how he struggles with his flesh and the desires of the flesh. So really the call here is to resist the selfish fleshly tendencies by presenting our bodies as a sacrifice. And a person's attitude toward money really is an indicator of that surrender and their relationship with the Lord. In fact, I think we find in Scripture that a person's attitude toward money can be an indicator of their salvation. Say, wait, well, I'm not sure I would go there. Well, you know, some of the most familiar stories in the Gospels involve a person's attitude toward wealth while discussing salvation. In fact, if you were with us last week, we considered a man we know of as the rich young ruler. Even though we're not find, we don't find out about his wealth until the very end in all three of the Gospels where it's recorded. But his question was that, I mean, it was an amazing question for doing evangelism. What must I do to have eternal life? But what we saw was he turned away because he was more attached to treasure on earth than attracted to treasure in heaven. When Jesus said, follow me. But I want us to consider a different man this morning. Let me have you turn with me to, to Luke chapter 19. We can read of the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. I want to have us go to another chapter, the next chapter over, because here's a man that, that had a different response when Jesus interacted with him. And, and we're very familiar with him if you've grown up in church, if you've grown up in Sunday school, but I'm, I'm afraid sometimes we miss the flow of the, the passage. This is a man we, we know, his name is Zacchaeus. And in, in Luke chapter 19, I actually thought of having Pastor Dave sing Zacchaeus was a wee little man, but, but we'd have to do it with the kids in here so they could show us the motions and I thought that's probably not what we want. So we didn't do that. But we're familiar with this. Look at the flow of the passage though. It says in verse 1, then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So right at the beginning, we're finding out about his, his financial status. Now, now understand, Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. He's going through Jer Jericho. He's going to stop at Bethany, and from there will come the triumphal entry. And then at the end of that week will be the crucifixion. So this is right toward the end of Christ's life. This is right at the end of his, his ministry and right before the, the crucifixion. And this encounter in, that is in, here recorded in Luke chapter 19 is a, a climax of Luke's gospel and emphasizes a key aspect of the gospel. Jesus encounters this man, Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector and very rich. And those usually went together. Because tax collectors would, would often get more money than necessary and keep it. And they would use the arm of the Roman government to collect it. So they were hated by the Jews. 
They were viewed as traitors. And, and, and this man wants to see Jesus. And so it says in verse 3 that, that as he is, is coming, he, he's got this question, he says, and he sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. And, and we find that there's something missing in the life of Zacchaeus. I, I wonder if he was very similar to the rich young ruler. He had, he had all this stuff. He was well off, but something was missing. Now, Zacchaeus is going to be an outcast from his own people. Where the rich young ruler, we don't find that. But somebody has said the human heart craves the beauty of God, not the glitter of gold. So he was rich, but he wasn't satisfied. And he wants to see Jesus, but he has a problem. He has a couple of problems, actually. One, there, there's a major crowd that is going to be there, and, and he's not going to be one that they're going to just let through. Because the, the, he doesn't have a good reputation, if they have a chance to elbow him out of the way, I'm sure it's happening. Oh, I'm sorry I stepped on your foot. <laughs> no, they're not. I mean, and, and he's trying to get through because he can't see, because he's short, and, and they're not letting him through. You know, we, we, we sing, he was a wee little man. We emphasize his, his stature. It's a cute children's song, but it obscures the significance of the barriers that he's facing. You know, there was no video feed. He, they weren't live streaming this. And, and, you know, if you don't like crowds, you're not going to be able to see Jesus. And, and now he has less than a noble reputation as a tax collector. And so they're not going to in any way facilitate his seeing Jesus. And because of that, he gets creative. You know, desire fuels creativity. We find ways to do what we want. So in verse 4, it says, So he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. He figures out the strategy, what way Christ is going to travel, and, and he's willing to run ahead to get to a tree and climb that tree. I mean, what, what steps would you be willing to take to battle the crowds to see Jesus. You know, we're not in the same situation, but sometimes we have to park a little further away or sit in a different part of the auditorium or sit closer to somebody than we might like. You know, we want our space. But Jesus is coming to this spot, and when he gets to the spot, he stops. And he looks up, and here's an IRS agent up a tree. <laughs> you got this tax collector up there. I mean, how, how out of character must that have been for Zacchaeus? First to run ahead and then to climb a tree. I mean, what would it take you to climb a tree today? You know, for our kids, they'd love to do it, just an okay. But for a lot of us, it's like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Too many things can go wrong. And he wants to be there. But you know, it may be out of character for you to be here today. You may be watching the service on, and, and you don't usually watch a, a sermon. But it's God's will. It's His desire that you would hear the Word of God. Or maybe you come, but you don't really listen to the sermon. You know, that can happen too. This is out of character. And Jesus stops under the tree and He looks up and He calls Zacchaeus by name. What an amazing statement in verse 5. He came to the place, He looked up, He saw him, and He said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. He calls him by name. He says, I'm going to your house. 
I don't think Zacchaeus had planned on that. He's a tax collector. Now, maybe he had heard, he had probably heard that Matthew, one of the twelve, was a former tax collector. So maybe that was part of what piqued his interest. But I really don't think he was expecting that Jesus would invite himself. And then we see what happens. Look at verse 6. So he made haste and he came down and he received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be the guest with a man who is a sinner. And then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And notice what Jesus says after Zacchaeus says, I will give away half of my goods, and if I've taken anything by fraud, which is probably pretty common, that was very common for tax collectors, he said, I'll restore fourfold. If you remember when we looked at thou shalt not steal, what the law required. And he said, I want to do what, I want to be right. It's not about my stuff anymore. It's about a relationship with the Savior. This is a radical change. The people are complaining. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Folks, that's the hope of the gospel for all of us. And the key statement of this passage, and really one of the key statements in the, the gospel of Luke is verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The point of the story is not how to evangelize short people. Although I think that's a good subject to consider. (laughs) It's Christ Jesus came into this world to seek and to save the lost. The, The outward manifestation of his salvation was a change of his attitude toward material things. So no longer did the treasure of earth grip his heart. In fact, he pledged to give half of his stuff away and make restitution with the other to anybody he had wronged. That was unheard of among tax collectors. But he treasured that relationship with Jesus Christ and treasure in heaven, which unfortunately the rich young ruler turned away from. The prospect of treasure in heaven resonated with his soul. And it it gleamed much brighter than the shiny stuff of earth. So how has our life changed since coming to Christ? Has Christ found you? Has he come to your house? Or does he just kind of, you visit his house and then leave him here? I find it fascinating that Luke is the only gospel that records this familiar story. It fits his emphasis that Jesus saves sinners and societal outcasts. And when you read through the Gospel of Luke, you find a lot of people that society wouldn't really look to as the outstanding citizens, and Jesus is going to them, calling them, eating with them. And we also see this story with its practical change of attitude of Zacchaeus really sets the stage for the parable that will follow. And we're not going to take time to look at it this morning, but in in verses 11 through 27, it highlights the danger of putting trust in the uncertainty of riches rather than the living God. As 1 Timothy 6 tells us, he's given us all things to enjoy. He's given them richly to us. 
and recognizing that stewardship is about faithfulness. It's not about acquisition. A surrendered body is not going to crave all the things this world has to offer. The fashions, the gadgets, the creature comforts that society has. And please understand, those are not wrong in and of themselves. Because God has given us all things richly to enjoy. But a a surrendered person can take pleasure in them without inordinately pursuing them. So Paul said, I am able to be abased and to abound. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, whether it's going well or going poorly, that that I am trusting him. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul encourages a mindset, a mentality of detachment from the things of the world. Because even good things can become weights if we're not careful. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is saying that the time is short and he encourages almost a coolness of attitude toward the temporal. And in verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 7, he says, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. He's saying in that verse, in verse 31, don't be so engrossed in the things of this world that you become preoccupied with getting all that you can rather than knowing who Christ is. We don't, we don't I mean, we, we dedicate ourselves, our minds, our intellect, our all to pursuing the Lord. And, you know, there are different worlds. We talk about, you know, not loving the world. There are different worlds. We talk about the world of, of entertainment, the world of fashion, the world of finance, the world of sports, the world of politics. And all of those are fine as long as they're properly in proportion. But we have to be careful because Paul's concern is that a person gets so enthralled with, with the temporal, not necessarily the sinful, but the things that just won't last, that it hinders them serving the Lord. So we can get so caught up in the things of this world and checking the, the news in the morning that we forget to be in the good news. You know, we don't have time for our devotions, but we have time for social media world and the sports world and the finance world and all of the others and finding out what's going on and understanding that a faithful steward A living sacrifice is not going to allow the attractions of the world, the possessions of the world, to preoccupy him, but rather he's going to set his affection on things above. And by giving freely and giving money as an offering, it really counters the the human tendency that we all have to to be stingy or short-sighted or selfish. And often a person who's unfaithful in the area of their giving is likely unfaithful in other areas of their life as well. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 says, Moreover, it's required in stewards that that one is found faithful. See, stewardship speaks of service. It's not simply about our giving. It's about giving ourselves. Second thing I want us to see, though, is that biblical stewardship endeavors to live for God in sacrificial service. You know, again, we have an aversion to sacrifice. We, you know, we'd rather be served than serve. You know, sacrificing does not come naturally to us in our flesh. We want our own way. When Warren Wearsby said, self-preservation is the first law of physical life, but self-sacrifice is the first law of spiritual life. That when we're growing spiritually, there's an attitude of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. And it's an attitude of sacrifice. 
But that's not our normal tendency. We, we see it with our kids. I mean, what happens when you, your children want something and you tell them no? Thank you for understanding, Mom and Dad. Thank you for listening. I know you've got such great wisdom. No, now there's a battle. Why? Because we don't want to, Saint. We don't want to give in. We want our own way. Well, how do we respond to no? When we don't get our way, when God says no. Because how we respond reveals our heart. And often it's seen in the body. Present your body. So if you ch- tell your child no, some, it's very evident physically. The eye roll, the sign, the dropped shoulders, the drooped head. Maybe it's in our tongue and what we say or how we say it. Or our fingers and what we text. Present your body a sacrifice that is holy unto the Lord. That's why we have to present it as a sacrifice that's alive. And then see that you will seek to be holy in your life. That we're striving in this area to be holy and be acceptable to God. God's desire is that we would be pleasing to Him, that we would be sanctified. And that's why so much of the battle takes place with our flesh, with our body. In fact, Romans 6 talks about this. We're to yield our members. And it's not talking about church members there. It's talking about body members. We're to yield our members to the Lord. Because we're all going to serve somewhere. Romans 6 says we're either going to be slaves to sin or if we've been set free from sin through Jesus Christ, we've become slaves of God. And that's what it says in Romans 6.22. And if we're slaves of God, the fruit of that is going to be holiness, and the result is eternal life. Now, we don't like that word slave, because it sounds like we have no rights. We, we like the word servant better, because then we, we've at least got some bargaining power in our culture. You know, better conditions, different hours, better time, you know, better pay, or we go on strike. That's not the word here. It's the word for slave. But when God is your master, he's a good master. He cares for us. But how do we approach serving God? You know, Lord, I'll give you this time, but this is mine. Or do we present our bodies completely to him? Do you really think that when we get to heaven that God is going to tell us we spent too much time serving him? Yeah, you just, you went way overboard. I didn't expect that. He gave his son for us. Sacrifice actually refers to giving up what we might want. Otherwise, it's not really a sacrifice. We talked earlier this year of the stewardship of time. We see that we're to be holy, but the second thing is you will display an attitude of worship in your life. That there's really an attitude of of reasonable service, spiritual worship. The, The reasonable service is the idea of presenting our bodies as a sacrifice that is alive and then seeking to be sanctified. And it just makes sense when you understand the mercies of God. So I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies to be sanctified. And that's reasonable. It's a spiritual act of worship. It's appropriate in our way to worship God because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we're to glorify God in our body. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. And so when we look at our life, if if we're about being honored, we're not going to function very well as a sacrificial servant. 
If our goal is to be rewarded or receive achievement or praise, then we're going to really reject being a servant. Because servants weren't known for getting awards. They didn't have the slave recognitions dinners. That was their job. And yet God is not unjust to forget our labor of love. We have a loving Heavenly Father. The third thing I want us to see from this passage, though, is that biblical stewardship requires a countercultural attitude. And I, I've, I've mentioned we will be distinct from the world. Do not be conformed to this world, as it says in, in, this, in, in verse 2. We're, we're not going to allow the world to squeeze us into its mold, that, that you will be distinct from the world, that biblical stewardship means we don't just go with the flow. You know, one of the reasons that our, our consideration of the 10th the commandment that we're not to covet was so convicting to many of us is that it's so countercultural in our day, that, that we're encouraged to be dissatisfied with what we have. And that our life will be better if we just get what they're selling. John Stott made the statement, possessions are the traveling luggage of time and not for eternity. Travel light. That's hard. That's un-American. Travel light. We want U-Hauls. We want more. We need, and, and yet there's a, there's a challenge for all of us. And if our cravings reveal a love for the world, then we need to be careful because we've got a problem. Remember, this world is passing away and the lusts of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2.17 Discontent has to do with, with who we are, not what we have. Some time ago, I, I came across a, a note that stated that the average American loses about $100 a year in spare change. Now, I don't think that's true anymore. I don't, most of us don't carry spare change. But at the same time, I found another study that said 41% of people give less than, than $100 to their church in a year. And I thought, you know, if your couch gets more than the church, that's not good. Now, again, that, I, I don't believe that's the testimony of Tri-City Baptist Church. We have a generous church. We have a giving church. But, but you know, we do need to examine. Say, well, my couch doesn't have much. I've looked. <laughs> well, what about the coffee shop? Does it get more than the church? And we want, we want to be generous to the Lord. We want, to be, we want to give in such a way that He is honored and glorified. That, and that is going to be countercultural to the world around us. But if we're going to be different from the world, then we have to be transformed by the Word. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about money, stewardship, eternity. About 10% of the Proverbs deal with this area. Colossians 3, 2 says, set your affections, your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. What is it we're really pursuing? Are we truly investing for eternity? Or is that just the sign that hangs in our lobby? It says in Matthew 6, 26, 16, 26, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
You know, a number of weeks ago when we were, when we were looking at the Ten Commandments, I, I gave some, just some foundational thoughts for stewardship that I think are valuable for all of us. And that's realizing, again, that God owns everything. That everything we have comes from Him. And He's entrusted us with what we have, our, our time, our talents, our abilities, that all of these are given to us. And then He expects us to increase what He has given us. And if you read further in Luke 19, that's what that parable is talking about. But understanding God's not going to ask us to do anything without giving us the tools and the power, the strength to get the job done and meeting our needs. And so when we pray about, about sacrifice Sunday, we're, we can't give equal amounts, but we can give with equal sacrifice. And then realizing that you will give an account to God for your stewardship of all areas of life. So that's why we sang, take my life and let it be. If he has our life, then the other areas flow from that. But understanding biblical stewardship is not only about what you do with your money, it's about what you do with your life. And understanding the importance of that. As we, as we conclude this morning, I want to share a story that uh, a number of years ago, Leo Tolstoy wrote a short story, and it was titled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? In this story, he tells about a Russian peasant named Pakhom, who, who grew up in poverty, he grew up in a small village, there wasn't a lot going on, and, and, and he, he became desirous to own property. He thought, if I own property, everything will be great. In fact, he said, even the devil himself won't be able to touch me. And so he ended up getting property. Well, then he wanted more. After his initial purchase, he, he desired more land. And, and it, there was a chance meeting that Pakum had with a, a traveling merchant and another peasant from a distant land. And, and they told Pakum of this, the, this vast area of land that was available. And it could be obtained at a very small price. It was owned by some nomadic people, the Bashkirs, and, and, and he said they were simple-minded people, but they were kind. They were very accepting. And, and Pakur thought, maybe I can get a good deal from them. I can negotiate some good terms. And so Pakum traveled to that land. He met the, the Bashkirs, and, and they were very gracious. They were very kind and, and open. And about, Pakum was amazed at the property. The land was, the soil was rich. The land was vast. It was pretty flat, so farming would be very easy. The, the grass was tall, and the crops grew amazingly well. And so when he met with the people, Pakum said, so what is the price? And the answer came back, our price is always the same, 1,000 rubles a day. Pakum didn't understand. A day? What kind of a measure is that? How many acres does that include? And they, the chief said, we do not know how to reckon it out. We sell land by the day. As much as you can walk around on foot in a day is yours, and the price is 1,000 rubles. Well, Pakum was surprised. He said, but in a day, I could get around a lot of land. And the chief laughed and said, then it will be yours. But there's one condition. 
If you do not return to the same spot that you started before the sun sets, all your money is lost and you do not get the land. Well, that night, Pakum had a hard time sleeping. He was excited, anticipating the next morning. And, and when he finally drifted off to sleep, and, and in the dozing, he, he, in his dream, he heard laughing outside his tent. And when he looked out, he saw the chief of the Bashkur sitting there laughing. And, a, and a, a man, when he looked closer, was laying at his feet. And as he looked even closer, it wasn't the chief, it was the devil himself. Well, he thought it was a fitful night. And so before, just before sunrise, Pakum arrived at the hill with his servant and the Bashkurs were there. The chief took off his hat and placed it on the ground and, and Pakum put his, his 1,000 rubles on top of the hat. And the chief said, this will be the starting point and the ending point. You must be back here before the sun sets or all will be lost. Well, Pakum started off at a pretty good pace in the cool of the day and he, and he found some beautiful land and he would put his mark down taking the shovel and digging and, and setting up the markers and, and then he went further and about the time he thought he probably should turn back he saw land that looked even better. And he said, well, I need to get that too. And so he let, went a little further and then he turned well, now the heat of the day is beginning to bother him. And he ate what he had, he drank the water he had, he started shedding the, the coat that he had and his boots so that he could move f faster and he realized he was cutting it close and so he, he started running back toward the hill. He could see the Bashkur sitting up on the hill and the chief there and, and he's getting closer and the sun is dropping and he realizes I've done it wrong, I'm going to lose it all. And as it starts to get dark, he realizes, but where they're sitting, the sun has not yet set. The sun is still hitting the top of that hill, and, and the Bashkirs are, are encouraging him. They're cheering. They want him to come, and they're, they're cheering him on. And as he runs, he finally makes his way up the hill out of breath and terribly hurt. And as he gets to the top of the hill, he drops to the earth, and he touches that hat. And in exhaustion, he dies. And his servant takes the shovel and digs a grave six feet long and buries Pakum there on the hill. How much land does a man need? Just six feet. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What are you investing in this morning? Does Christ have your life? Have you given all to Him? That's the foundation of stewardship. Because biblical stewardship is not about what you do with your money. It's about what you do with your life. Are you investing for eternity? That sets the foundation for understanding stewardship for those who have trusted Christ. And if you haven't trusted Christ, behold, today is the day to do that. Christ Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your...